You are listening to Making It in the Toy Industry, episode number 145. We definitely had someone at the beginning tell us, you know, you shouldn't even try to get a card game into Target. It's way too competitive. That's a competitive market. I wouldn't even start there. And obviously that wasn't a a deterrent for us, you know. But you didn't start there, so. That's true. We didn't start there. You didn't. Welcome to Making It in the Toy Industry, a podcast for inventors and entrepreneurs like you. And now your host, Ajel Wade. Hey there, toy people. Ajel Wade here, and welcome back to another episode of the Toy Coach Podcast, Making It in the Toy Industry. This is a weekly podcast brought to you by thetoycoach.com. Today's guest is Kiara Imani, an attorney and author of the book, Therapy Isn't Just for White People. And she's the co-founder of Like You Cards, a getting-to-know-you card game that facilitates human connection and meaningful conversation. Kiara is also on the associate board of directors for Free Wheelchair Mission, a nonprofit organization providing wheelchairs for people with disabilities in developing nations. And she's on the board of directors for Women in Toys, a nonprofit organization that if you listen to this podcast, you know, that champions and advocates for women in the toy industry. Kiara graduated from the University of Virginia School of Law and received her bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia in 2011 with a major in political science, specifically focusing on politics in the media. So today on the podcast, we're going to go into Kiara's journey developing like you cards. I want to share how to play this card game, the amazing store she's gotten it into, and maybe we'll get into some struggles she's had in her toy journey that you guys can learn from. Kiara, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I also just have to say you have the most incredible podcast voice. I love it. Thank you so much. Before I had the podcast, I was always thinking, what is a thing I could do that uses my voice and uses other stuff that I know? And so when I came up with the podcast, it was just perfect. (laughs) So thank you for noticing. Of course. I love it. So I want to start out with your toy story, Kiara. You've done so many things in your career so far. You're a lawyer. I I saw that you did a dance video to a Beyonce song that went viral with your uncle. You wrote a book called Therapy Isn't Just for White People. You've done a lot. Some would say too much. I'm curious (laughs) to know, when did your toy journey begin? When did you first break into the toy industry? Yeah, so I never really thought about getting into the toy industry. I think what I am really passionate about in general is storytelling, just viewing the world through people's stories. I grew up in Manassas, Virginia, which is a smaller town growing now, but I there was one middle school, one high school in my entire town. And I didn't experience a lot of the world there. And so much of the world that I did experience from LA to France to England was through television. It was just through stories. It was through books and reading about other people's experiences. So I just gained a a real appreciation for understanding the power of story and learning about other people's experiences who are different than you, who look different than you, who think differently than you do. So that's really led me down a road of writing. And, you know, I I was an op-ed writer for Huffington Post for some years during my 
college and law school journey. And really coming up with the card game was about trying to, I really don't like small talk. So kind of cut through small talk and to really just get people sharing their stories. I think it can be so easy to view people through the lens of their labels. Are you man or woman? Are you black or white? Are you a liberal or conservative? What are your faith beliefs? And we take all of these labels and then we create these preconceived notions about who somebody is. And it really doesn't even give us the opportunity to get to know other people's stories. And so that's kind of where Like You cards were birthed from. Do you remember the very first moment you had the idea for something like Like You cards to avoid small talk? Yeah. Well, working in corporate America, I think I was just (laughs) on calls and in spaces all the time where, you know, yeah, just happy hours. I think when 2020 happened too, and I remember having to do a virtual happy hour at the company that I was working for then. And, you know, people all had their drinks and we talked about Netflix for a second. We talked about COVID and the weather. And then there were just so many awkward silences. And in those spaces, I don't like having to be the person to push the conversation forward. Like, I'll do it, but it feels like work. Mm -hmm. And I remember Mm -hmm, thinking, mm -hmm. man, wouldn't it be so great if people had tools so that these awkward silences just didn't have to exist? What if we had a tool to help us have better conversations? Did you look for a tool, like something that already existed? Did you look for something? I did. I did look for a tool and I came across a game, which I think is really cool. We're not really strangers, which I thought was fun, but also really, really deep. Like you take out your pencil and your notepad and you get really deep with somebody really quickly. And I don't mind doing that. I kind of like going deep with people. I remember one of my coworkers told Mm -hmm. me the very first day we met, I asked him like, where do you think our souls go when we die? And he was like, whoa. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody feels comfortable, understandably so, going really deep really quickly. So I was having a hard time finding a tool where you had the option to go deep if you wanted to, but just had really fun, non-threatening questions that could, you know, just kind of, I would say putting the medicine in the peanut butter, right? Like giving people an opportunity to connect, but doing it in a way that feels non-threatening. So in your card game, and we're going to get into the details of it, but just top level, can you choose which questions to answer and move on if you're not comfortable with one that's currently up? Absolutely. So I'm a millennial and they say millennials don't like rules. And I would say that I definitely fall in that category. I thought that was because I was a middle child. I I think it's a millennial (laughs) thing. I I don't like being told what to do. I don't like when someone tells me that I can or I can't or that's not realistic. Automatically, my brain is like, you don't know me. So we say that we are the game with no rules, just suggested ways to play. So we have lots of of different suggested ways to play on the website. And it's cool too, because I've had teachers tell me ways in which they've used the game. And I actually had a company very recently tell me that their HR uses it whenever they have uses like you cards, whenever they have new employees, they'll pick a few cards and give one to all the employees as they get to know each other. So I thought that was really cool. So we're constantly oh, getting feedback for, for different ways to use the cards. But to answer your question, yes, absolutely. If you're not comfortable with the question, I think it's totally fine to pass and move it forward. We do have a version of the game for adults that's a drinking game that says if you skip a question, you have to take a shot. So there's that. But yeah, you you get to decide how you want to play. Okay. So now I want to ask you some questions about your card game that 
any toy or game creator listening should be able to answer answer about their product, especially if they're pitching it to someone who might hold it in their store or to somebody somebody that they want to sell it to. So for Like You Cards, first question, how many players is your game designed for? We actually were very intentional so that you could use it as a solo player if you wanted to, but you could Mm -hmm. also use it for large groups. So there's really no limit. So for example, we have one of our suggested ways to play is just journal entries, taking a card and sitting with the answer and turning it into a journal or story to kind of explore your own story. Or you could use it as a conference where you break people up into groups and every group gets one card and everyone goes around the circle and answers the question. So the possibilities are endless. What is the age range of your game? 16 and up for sure. I actually know a lot of parents who play with their children and I would never tell you that your children couldn't play. We are very intentional to make the questions pretty family friendly, but I think some of the topics as it pertains to just love and career, probably a little more appropriate for a teenager to think through as opposed to a six or seven year old. But we do have a parents and children's game coming to market soon. I was uh, going to ask. Yes, for kids ages 5 through 11, and then another one for kids ages 12 through 17. Oh, that's exciting. So how long does the game take to play? Or how long do people normally decide to play it? How does that work? Yeah, so I've seen different things. I think generally when I'm playing with friends, it lasts at least an hour. After that, people kind of tend to, you know, just start doing other things or it leads into other conversations. I think that's the biggest piece of Mm -hmm. this. Sometimes you'll hop on a question, maybe for example, do you believe Zodiac signs tell you the truth about a person? And it could turn into a really deep conversation that just leads you completely away from the game, which I'm always happy Mm -hmm. to see because that's kind of the point of the game. And how is the game played? I saw online it was yellow cards are about what makes us fascinating and blue cards about what makes us human. Is that correct? Yeah, so there are two different tracks, the yellow track and the blue track. The blue questions, I would say, tend to get a little deeper, uh, you know, just the the hard, tough parts of humanity. The yellow questions tend to be a little bit more fun and lighthearted. So it really gives people an option for how deep they want to get in conversation. We are very intentional about that. Although I will say every time I played with people using yellow cards, after the first 20 minutes, they're like, okay, we're ready for deep questions. We, we know each other now. Let's get real deep. So That's I think good. it's exciting to be able to use both. I know that you state that your cards kind of designed to combat cancel culture. And they reminded me of there was the there's this Norwegian film director and her name, I don't know if I'm going to say it right, Dia Khan. And I and she sits down with people that she intentionally sits down with people who she has opposing views uh, from and tries to get to know why they think the way that that they do, but also get them to see her as a human and understand why she thinks the way she does. Uh, so is is that kind of what the goal was with your like you cards, just to get people who are very different to be able to have a conversation and enjoy a conversation of differences? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's definitely one yeah. of the biggest concerns that we had. You know, as I mentioned, just 
a world in which we're always trying to put people in boxes and we think we know what's going on yeah. in somebody else's head and we th- we assume we understand their story or maybe it's a question where for example I we have a, a yellow question that asks if you could change your name what would you change your name to and I was playing with a con- a Caucasian woman whose name was like Katie and I wouldn't imagine that she would want a name other than Katie. She looked like Katie to me. And she told this story about how growing up as a white girl named Katie, there were seven other Katies in her class. And it was hard for her to see her identity as different and other. And sometimes she wished she had a name that was different and maybe a name people had never seen or couldn't pronounce because it would have made her feel special. And it was so opposite of my experience because I was like, well, my name is Kiara. No one could pronounce it. Whenever we went on field trips and you got those <laughs> little mugs or keychains with your name on it, my name was oh. Oh, yeah. There. No, I never. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the teacher Same. never, like I wanted a name like everyone else's. Really? I was the opposite. People would make fun of my name for sure. But then I remember thinking like, yeah, but how weird is it that your name is Sarah and you have no idea if she's talking to you or the other Sarah? I used to think that was so weird. I was like, how can you just have the same name? I don't understand. It's, just, so it's just really interesting to hear people's perspectives and you know, one of the things we always yeah. say now is don't make assumptions, ask questions. And I think just being mm-hmm. curious about the world and showing up wanting to hear yeah. people's stories and experiences has really just opened my own mind. But I think for a lot of other people too, it just helps create mm-hmm. better relationships. Yeah. I was actually going to ask, how do you think your card game facilitates conversation without creating animosity or or just yeah, negative conversation, but I think it might be because your card game actually asks people to ask somebody a question. And once you put yourself out there to ask what someone thinks about something, you're more open to receiving it because you literally just asked for it. So I think on the other side, it really gives people an opportunity to practice deep listening. Do you have any cards with you? Can we play a few rounds? Absolutely. I always have cards with me. Okay. (laughs) Do you, would you like to play the yellow cards or the blue cards? Let's do two yellow and a blue. Oh, two yellow and a blue. Okay. My first yellow question for you is who should pay on a first date? Ooh, I think the man. <laughs> so you're very traditional. I am traditional in a very logical way in that my hair is expensive. My clothes are expensive. My makeup is expensive. Generally, being a woman in this country is expensive, and we don't get paid as much. Therefore, you should pay. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I feel so differently, and I think it's only because when people pay for me, then I feel like I owe them something. Fair. So there is this idea that if the guy pays, I'm like, do you expect me to go home with you? Do you think this means we're going to keep talking? And Mm -hmm. if we split it, nobody owes anybody anything. In the dating realm, I'll stay with that topic on the other question. Online dating, yes or no? Do you believe in it? Uh, I mean... I mean, it didn't work for me. So for me, no. What what do you think? (laughs) You know, I've... Again, I have a few friends that are happily married that met online. And so I know it's possible. But the idea of, I mean, I created like you card. So the idea of quickly deciding whether or not somebody is for you based off pictures and a label 
really makes it, me uncomfortable. It, yeah. And like, how easy would it be to just pass by somebody who could have been your perfect person? A hundred, because you didn't like the angle of their picture or you didn't it, understand the context of their joke or exactly. any of the other thousands of reasons that you might decide that somebody is not for you online. I don't know. I just for like, can you sure. really get to know somebody or can you really tell if there's a spark from a profile? No. And I had a friend from work who was on a date with a guy she met online who was single. Mm-hmm. And while she uh. was on the date, his wife showed up <gasps> at dinner and was like, what are you doing? But like, okay, Let's say, what do you think people could do today, though, instead of online? They're like, everything's online. How am I supposed to meet somebody? What else that can I do? That is a great question. And mm-hmm. so many of my single friends ask me that question. And I'm like, yeah. I'll let you know. I know there's got to be a better way. I think meetups yeah. are cool. I met my boyfriend at a poetry show on Valentine's Day. It was like very stereotypical. But outside of that meet cute, I feel like my dream would always be to meet somebody in like a coffee shop or a bookstore. So I feel like I just hang out at coffee shops and bookstores all the time. like Maybe with like you cards. Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) you cards. Hold one up and just ask a random (laughs) handsome man a question. Listen, I actually think this game is great for first dates. Obviously, I'm a little biased, but. Hang on. Marketing idea for like you cards. Ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Either you host this yourself or you partner with somebody that already does a speed dating event with like you cards. So instead of like going and saying like, hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. Like maybe you introduce your name, but then you just answer a like you cards question. I love that you said that. We were actually working on something like that before the second shutdown of the pandemic. We might rename it, but it was called F Online Dating. And it was just people showing up at a bar and playing like you cards and getting to know each other. An opportunity to meet in real life. More questions. Okay, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I'll do a a blue question. We'll do a more serious question. What's your greatest insecurity? Ooh. Which one that that crosses your mind the most? That I will never amount to the greatness that my family and friends seem to think I will be slash am. Mm. Like, I think I can relate to that a lot, actually. Being somebody where someone's always like, oh, it's definitely going to work out for you. Or like, of course, you'll get that thing. Or like, if if anybody will make it work, it's you. And like, Mm -hmm. it's a compliment, but it's also a lot of pressure because it makes me feel like my identity is wrapped up in success. And then who am I if I fail? I'm so grateful that I have all these people supporting the heck out of everything that I do. But at the same time, you're like, no, I'm not that good. I can't do this or I'm tired or, you know, yeah, yes. I remember specifically studying for the bar exam after law school. And every time someone told me, you're smart, you're definitely going to pass, I would just go cry because it just felt like this extraordinary pressure. Like, okay, so you're saying that I'm smart and you're saying mm-hmm. that I'm going to pass, but I know so many people who are smart and fail. So if I fail, are you going to see me as not smart? Like, am I right. not as great in your eyes? Like I actually did much better when people would say, well, whether you pass or fail, you're still like the beautiful person that you are. Like that felt like support, but telling me, oh, you're definitely going to pass. It's going to be fine. Actually right. wasn't helpful. Same. 
And did you ever actually feel that in the time in your life before you accomplished a bunch of stuff that when people would say, you can't do this, or you're not going to make that happen, you were actually more confident and more motivated? Absolutely. It's so strange. I have definitely found more motivation from people telling me that things were impossible and a lot of pressure and insecurity with people telling me that it's going to work and it's going to happen. And everyone's love languages are so different. I think, for example, one thing my dad is really good at doing, Mm -hmm. he never, ever, ever tells me that it's going to happen. It's going to work. He always just says, kid, I love you no matter what. Like, And I'm like, there's no pressure on me, you know, love with no pressure feels good. All right. That was an amazing game. I loved it. I could talk to you all day doing those things. Yeah, I I need definitely someone that like believes in my product and carries it around everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I really think just for myself, because I don't like small talk. And if I'm Mm -hmm. in a space where I feel like that's the case, I tend to find the snack table and just like stand by myself and Like, I don't want to network. I don't want to do anything. And Mm -hmm. I think just having cards and tools has made it so much easier for me to connect with people. I'm curious, though. I feel um, I, too, am a person who likes to dive deep. And I notice that people get very uncomfortable, though. So I want to actually go into the manufacturing, maybe story of struggle of your brand. When you were choosing the questions to put into your game, I'm sure you tested it. Were you finding that people weren't comfortable, like, going this deep in networking events or? Yeah, I found the complete opposite because I think when people start playing with the yellow questions, they start to feel safe. And so much of the reason we don't want to go deep is because we don't feel safe. So when they're in a space and they're already answering lighthearted questions, if they feel safe, then they want to go to uh, deeper questions. Now I'm all for sharing, but I do tell people that safety is important. If you feel like you're answering questions with somebody who's being judgmental or going to hurt or harm you or use that information ag- against you, it's kind of why we like people giving getting the option. And sometimes I think you can go deeper than the bandwidth of your relationship can it can withstand at a certain mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. But in in most of these conversations, I, I think people start to really understand that we do have a lot more in common than we have different. Like even if the answers are different, a lot of the whys and the fears and the explanations behind them, we can relate to. And as they start to feel safe, you get a little deeper. And I have a guy friend, for example, who is not emotional, does not like to talk about his share feelings, share feelings. Like I, we, we could talk about career and job and I would never know what's going on in his personal life. And we started playing like you cards and we started with the yellow questions. And of course it got to the blue questions and it was a group of us. And by the end of the conversation, he was in tears talking about how he didn't know if he was going to marry his current girlfriend or whether they were going to break up. And we all kind of got to like speak life into him and ask him what was going on. And after we played the game, the first thing he said was like, you tricked me. Like you tricked me into sharing my feelings, but also I'm so glad you did because I never would have given you all the opportunity to show up for me if if I hadn't played. Oh, that's like the movie Inside Out. When yeah, she realizes, exactly. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite movies and themes. Oh, love it. Okay. We got to, we got to move on to manufacturing and, and then we're going to get into stories of success because you are in major retailers. We're going to get there. But when you manufactured your card game, did you struggle finding a manufacturer? Um, we did. And I think that's just because we have so many different 
options. We were somebody that decided kind of very early on after quoting that we were going to manufacture overseas. Mm -hmm. It just made a lot more sense in terms of money. And it's really hard to know which companies are trustworthy and which ones are not, which ones just have a good website. Like what are their working conditions? So we kind of went backwards. We found a lot of card games that were and looked up where they were manufacturing and then had conversations. Creators tended to be really willing to be like, this has been my experience. We actually had creators who were like, don't work with these people. They didn't deliver on time. That's not something that I, I, I would recommend. Then we also had other creators who were like, no, this place was great. I highly recommend happy to make an introduction. So I think just kind of doing your research and asking people who have actually worked with the companies can be incredibly Mm. helpful. And we were just kind of doing Google searches for who was manufacturing, but they'll list the people that they work with a lot of times, like on their websites. Mm -hmm. So we were just reaching out to some of those creators to see, you know, what their experience had been. There's a, I think the game is called Change the Tune. I'll throw out that game because I've played it and it's actually really fun. It's like a music-based game. Uh, But the creator of that game, he was so kind and just really willing to tell us about his experience with like wiring money and and just like getting into the nitty gritty of his manufacturing. That was really, really helpful for us. And okay, now I want to move on to your packaging because it's really cool. Who like why the retro theme and who designed it? So we hired a we had a couple different designers that we were we were looking at all three of them we found on Fiverr. Shout out to Fiverr. It's like one of my favorite websites ever. But we knew we wanted to do something kind of like 90s and fun and bright. I think mm-hmm. I'm a millennial. 90s were kind of a golden age for me. Yeah. And every all of the those products and everything at the time just looked like fun. And we yeah. wanted to create a game that just felt inviting. Like you want to pick it up off the shelf and ask, oh, what's this? And what was the hardest part of you um, getting onboarded with retailers once you had your product ready? Oh, goodness. So convincing people that the product will sell is probably the hardest piece because you think you have a great product. And we were using it with friends and family and getting all of this great feedback. And so we knew we had a good product, but trying to convince other people of that can be really hard. So we started selling on our own first. We were selling on our website and pretty much everyone in our communities bought the card. So it was like the first initial batch we ordered. I think we ordered like 500 sold out pretty quickly. What was your retail price point at that time? Uh, we, at that point, we have two different games, a travel deck, which is a little bit smaller. Um, it has mm-hmm. 50 questions. And then we have a bigger deck, which has a hundred questions and a little more stackable, but we only had the smaller deck at the beginning. So we started out with the travel deck and we were selling for $14.99 on our website. Okay. And yeah, it sold out pretty quickly. And we used that and then started selling locally here in LA at different live events. We have like a lot of flea market type setups in Los Angeles where you can come, vendors can come sell on a Saturday. So we started doing that and that was doing well. And then there was a small bookstore. uh, Well, not a small bookstore. It's actually a pretty big store. It's Huntington (laughs) Bookstore down the street from my house who we, you know, I told them all about the product and they loved that I was local. So they allowed us to start selling in their stores. And I think that was really great because once you're selling in one space, 
it's a lot easier to get other people to jump yes, on board. to trust you, yeah. And everybody that I talk to likes to start thinking about the big stores, like the Walmarts, the Targets. But I think a lot of times we take for granted our local stores. And sometimes 100%. the local stores are just more willing. It's not a huge risk. They don't place a huge order. And they love generally, depending on where you're from, supporting local artists and creators and talent. So I think because they're local, local businesses, exactly. they're small businesses too. Yeah, they get it. Exactly. So I, I always, you know, I always encourage people to start there because then when you do start reaching out to bigger retailers, you have a little bit more of a proof of concept. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I love that you started working with smaller retailers, but now I know that your cars were sold in Target. So we've got to talk about how that happened. Yeah. So when, whenever people ask me that question, I tend to say I just, just I'm scrappy. So I would go from emailing or finding people on LinkedIn and then trying to figure out the moniker of the name because there are just only so many, right? It's like first name dot last name at store.com, first initial <laughs> last name at store.com. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then yeah, yeah. once I would find one that worked, I'm like, okay, I know how the company sets up emails. But I also don't think it's fair to like spam people, especially mm-hmm. before it's time. So mm-hmm. I would create a list of people I really wanted to reach out to from LinkedIn based off buying profiles, like who's in charge of buying at different stores, and then would start sending out emails. But I, you know, included as much information as I could about the product. When it was created, I made sure I had our, like our barcodes already set up on all of the product. Yeah. I Everything was trademarked already. I had a deck, like a competitive advantage deck showing how we separated ourselves from other products. I had a marketing plan because sometimes you really only get one opportunity for people to consider. So I just holistically tried to include and do as much as possible to make sure everything was set up and ready to go. And with Target, I ended up connecting with someone who worked in the baby section who thought it was an amazing product. And sent it to someone who worked in gifts, who then sent it to somebody who worked for digital. They're like, well, maybe we could start you out just selling online. And then the online person was like, we could totally do that. But I actually think you have a great shot of being in stores. Let me connect you to the game buyer. So it was just like this person connecting to this person, connecting to that person. How many months did it take? Do you remember from beginning to to getting to the right person? I think that whole process was about a year from like wow ori- so- originally reaching out from LinkedIn yeah, yeah, yeah. But to like yeah. signing a contract. It was about a year. It's like that's just what I wanted to um, drive home that it's not going to happen instantly. I feel like some some of my students message me and they're like, "Michelle, I just messaged somebody. It's been two weeks. When should I follow up?" I'm like, "Just calm down." <laughs> It's going to be okay. You know? yeah. yeah. And for anybody working in toys, you'll tend to find that different seasons tend to be like really busy for people. Yes. So if they're in a season of buying for fall, don't take mm-hmm. it personally. It's not that yeah. they're not responding to you. They're just yeah. really overwhelmed at the moment. Yes. Can you share what your MSRP for the product that you have in Target is today? Yes. So the one in Target is actually the bigger deck. And we created that deck as we started thinking about going to to market with some of these bigger stores. And that came from Mm -hmm. a lot of market research and just looking at how product was set up. And we got feedback that with the smaller decks, number one, it's easier for people to see a product when it's a little bit bigger. And number two, if you have a product that's stackable, 
like stacks up on top of each other easier. It's just a lot yes. easier to put on the shelves. So it can just, fit more on the shelf. Exactly. And mm-hmm. we were just thinking through it very tactically. So, you know, the, the bigger deck, which it's obviously costs a little bit more to manufacture than the smaller deck, which is why it has a higher selling point, $19.99. But we definitely were taking all of that into consideration because I would say the first iteration, we were just really concerned with the game itself. Is this a fun game? Are people going to like playing it? And obviously thought about wanting fun packaging. But then the second iteration, we were really concerned about just the retail practical considerations. Where is it going to fit on the shelf? So we spent time just kind of walking around stores and looking at others and looking at what stood out and made sense. Yes, that's like the most important thing. Yes, absolutely. And so you said you gave them a marketing plan. What do you do to market your game to make sure it will sell? A lot of people think like, I just want to get it into the store and that's it. But like, no, you have to get people to want to go to the store and get your product. How do you make that happen? That is a a constantly evolving question because the market keeps changing. I think I always say take advantage first of everybody in your community. Well, not take advantage, but yeah. <laughs> make sure and it doesn't come out right. right. Don't but, use them. Exactly. You're not using that, but making them aware of what you're doing. So I think using your social media networks, I post Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Also, if you have a, a an email list, I think that's really helpful too. emailing people out. This is available now. I think that's just the easiest place to start because there are already people that are there mm-hmm. on on top of that. I think some traditional marketing is still really helpful. So we hired a publicist that you know, got us a few articles like Black Enterprise and Fox 5 did a piece and just having some publicity can be really helpful. And I don't know that we see huge ROI, generally return of investment from each piece, but being able to take those interviews and stuff and put them on your website and share them on social also really legitimizes your your product because people tend to, for whatever reason, they like things that other people care about. So if, if you can you know, share those things. And it kind of gives a message, oh, other people care about this. Maybe I should start paying attention to it too. So that was helpful. And then we've had a few influencer marketing campaigns that we've really just started to get into the influencer marketing space and just partnering with creators whose values are really similar to ours and who we think who value storytelling and getting to know people and just understanding the humanity of a person and having them kind of post about it on their socials or they'll play with their friends and post it online. And we've seen a lot of ROI from influencer marketing campaigns. Great. Is that like micro or how many followers give the best ROI? Um, We've done both. We've done uh, some like micro campaigns and I would say it's like 10K followers and less. And I think Mm -hmm. those you always see kind of like slight bumps every week and the bumps are good because if you know, once you get into retail, the next goal is staying in retail. So you want to continually (laughs) sell your product. And then we did a partnership with, uh, I don't know if you know, Jen Hatmaker, who mm-hmm. I I love. She's amazing. She's actually a white woman dating a black guy who adopted a black daughter. And she's just a great ally. I love her content. And I just really enjoy following her page. Very authentic. And we did a partnership with her and she was playing with a friend and saw a lot of great positive responses from that too. But I think a huge part of this, and she's someone who has like half a million followers on Instagram. So that's an example of someone with a a bigger following. But I think too, just partnering and being really strategic about people whose values really are aligned 
Because mm-hmm. if it's somebody who, you know, doesn't value a lot of those things, and then all of a sudden they're posting about your product, their followers are probably not going to be aligned because people mm-hmm. tend to follow people with similar values or they're not going to believe yeah. it. They're going to be right. like, why is this person posting, posting about this, this product? So yeah, I think yeah, finding yeah. the right partners is probably the most important. Okay, let's give your closing question so we can get you out of here. Um, what is the best piece of advice that you've received uh, as you've been creating your toy business? Uh, we've, re- we've received advice from so many different people. The best piece of advice would probably be to like trust ourselves. I think getting into the industry and just being someone with bright eyes and bushy-tailed and all of these ideas about the products we wanted to create and the games we wanted to create, there were so many people who were jaded by the industry who Mm -hmm. are like, well, I tried to do this for 10 years and it never happened. Or like, Mm -hmm. I tried to get into Walmart and this was my feedback and and maybe you shouldn't try this. And just people kind of leading us in all kinds of directions based off their own experiences. And I think Mm -hmm. it is helpful to hear people's experiences, especially Mm -hmm. if, you know, they have a don't do it like this story because this is what happened. But at the same time, I think it's really easy to, to start to limit yourself based off other people's experiences and kind of lose the spark and the imagination and the dreaming that helped you get to where you are to begin with. So I think a lot of times we just have to go back to maybe we don't need more advice. Like maybe we actually need to tune everybody out and just sit with ourselves and trust the little voice inside of us that says, this is going to be a good idea. So very true. It's more, I I loved what you said about if it's advice on don't do it this way, that's great to follow. But when it's advice, that's like, just don't do it. <laughs> that's, not, exactly. that's not really the advice we want We want right now. We want the don't do it this way. We definitely had someone at the beginning, for example, tell us, you know, you shouldn't cr- even try to get a card game into Target. It's way too competitive. That's a competitive market. I wouldn't even start there. And obviously that wasn't a, a deterrent for us, you know. But you so. didn't start there. So... That's true. We didn't start you there. You didn't. You didn't start there. You just did it differently. Exactly. Last question for you. What toy blew your mind as a kid? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm going to have to say the most stereotypical thing. I loved Barbie. I was like... I was like the biggest... I was the biggest Barbie fan. I played with Barbie until I was maybe 12 or 13. And I know she got a bad rap because it became about beauty and, you know, being vapid and changing your outfit and your hair. But that's not why I played with Barbie. Like, I can, I feel like I'm doing a Barbie commercial right now. But I, like I said, I've always been really big on, like, storytelling and imagination. Mm -hmm. And I feel Mm -hmm. like those dolls really helped me, like, play pretend and work through who I wanted to be as an adult, as a grown-up. I could, like, see myself in the future and... Other people might have been more focused on the fact that she was had long hair, but I was more focused on the fact that they had Barbies of all different professions. I had like teacher Barbie and vet Barbie and just really thinking through all of the possibilities of like who you could be in this world. And and yeah, that was kind of like my my staple toy for a very probably embarrassingly long time. And then I kind of moved over to American Girl doll. But I started with Barbie. Well, the reason Ruth Handler created it was because she saw her kids playing with baby dolls in a different way than they had before. Instead of playing nurturing, they were like role playing exactly what you said, imagining themselves like grown up. That's where the idea came from. So you you got it right. The world 
the world gave Barbie just, you know. A terrible name. They're like, oh, you're plastic with no thoughts in your head. I'm like, uh, excuse me, my Barbies had a lot of thoughts. They were changing the world. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being on the podcast today. This was a great talk, great episode. And where can people find more about Like You Cards or learn more about you? Yes, you can visit our website, likeyoucards.com, L-I-K-E-U cards.com. You can find us at Target. Early 2023, we'll also be in Kohl's, which is super exciting. Or you can visit our Instagram at likeyoucards. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Toy People, my interview with Kiara Imani. Now, one of the biggest lessons I want you to take away today is that sometimes the answer is to change your approach to your toy dreams, not maybe the dreams themselves. Kiara learned this lesson when someone told her she shouldn't even try to get her game to target. She definitely shouldn't start there. So she didn't start there. Instead, she started at a popular boutique bookstore, but eventually through her tenacity and scrappiness, she was able to get into Target. So just think about that. It might not necessarily be that your dreams are too big, but have to get creative about how you achieve them. Now, another thing I want you to take away from this episode is that if you are someone who is completely outside of the realm of toys, you are a career professional, maybe you're a doctor, a chemist, maybe you're a teacher, or maybe you're a full-time artist of some kind, and you think that you can't break into the toy industry, you can. Kiara is an example of this. Many students of my program, Toy Creators Academy, are also examples of this. So if you want some help breaking into the toy industry, there's two things you can do. You can head over to toycreatorsacademy.com, learn more about that program, but also I've got this free masterclass called The Spookiest Mistakes New Toy and Game Creators Make that is happening this week and next week. You can sign up for that. It's free. You can sign up for that over at learn.thetoycoach.com forward slash spooky, or you can head over to my Instagram and grab the link there. So let's get into your homework for today. We had a lot of great tips from Kiara, but your homework from today is actually going to focus on the bit she said about a partnership, finding the right partnership that could elevate your toy brand. So if you're selling a toy product direct to consumers, or maybe you have a product in stores or both, I would love for you to spend this week thinking about a partnership that could really elevate your brand. Maybe it's an influencer with a lifestyle that fits your product. Maybe it is another product entirely like a home goods product or a hair care product that would align well with your product line. And I want you to think about what that partnership could look like. All you have to do is think about it this week. Maybe next week you take some action on it. Now, if you love podcast and you haven't already left a review what are you waiting for? Your reviews keep me coming back week after week. So if you can take a moment wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review. I hope it's a good one. As always, thank you so much for joining me here today, Toy People. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there, so it truly means the world to me that you tune into this one. Until next week, I'll see you later, Toy People. Thanks for listening to Making It in the Toy Industry podcast with Agile Wade. Head over to thetoycoach.com for more information, tips, and advice.
Hey, are you an aspiring toy inventor or toy entrepreneur? Then you should check out Toy Creators Academy, the first of its kind online program designed to help you develop and pitch your toy ideas. Head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn more.